0: to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sister Linda. We are today continuing our our series uh, on letters from Jesus, uh, where we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, where Jesus is dictating to the Apostle John messages that he is sending to seven churches in western Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And through those churches, messages that he's sending even to us here Today, we're taking each of those letters one by one, and today we've come upon the letter to the church in Pergamum. Let's bow our heads together and pray as we look at this passage. Jesus, we are so grateful. It's an honor. We're so grateful to be able to hear your word so publicly, to hear your word preached, studied, and it's a it's a gift that you've given to us in this country, in this place, and so we want to almost uh, honor that privilege and honor our sisters and brothers around the world who don't have that privilege by taking serious this moment where you want to speak to us and teach us, and so it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we ask that you would help us to be good listeners of your word, and not just listeners and hearers, but doers of your word. So come and glorify yourself, Jesus. This time ultimately is for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think I have a simple burden goal here for you this morning as we look at this passage, and it's simply that we would understand this. Faithfulness to Jesus is costly. Loyalty to Jesus, love for the one who so loved us that he gave everything to redeem us, rescue us, to bring us into his family, and to give us a place in his eternal new creation. Often comes at a cost. We expect it to be easy. We would prefer it to be easy. That following Jesus might mean helping our conscience when we're having a bad day, or getting a little bit of emotional uplift, Maybe wisdom for decision-making. Maybe more relationships, because life indeed can be lonely. But the apostles in Scripture point us in a different direction. We're told in Acts chapter four twenty-two, for example, that the apostles declared to one another, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Hardships, it's just part of the deal. Jesus himself taught that the kingdom of God is is kind of like a a treasure that's so valuable, so attractive that a man upon finding it was willing to give up everything in his life in order to have it. A treasure that you would give it all up for. And Jesus also said elsewhere in his ministry, Mark chapter 8, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a minister who eventually was martyred for his Christian faith during the Nazi era in Germany. He reflected on this passage, wrote a whole book about it called The Cost of Discipleship, and he explains the meaning of Jesus' words When he called us to take up our cross, Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus says that every Christian has his own cross waiting for him, a cross destined and appointed by God. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Notice Bonhoeffer's point. This suffering, this cost, It's the rule, not the exception. Faithfulness to Jesus is costly. For many of the Christians in Pergamum, the cost was severe. In fact, it was persecution. This is the the first of two ways Jesus addresses this costliness of faithfulness. We'll get to the second one in a moment. Persecution first. There were some among them, these per- uh, Pergamum, Pergamum, Christians who had been executed for their faith in Christ. Jesus mentions this in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Many have wondered who this Antipas is. The truth is we know almost nothing about him, but we do remember his name. So honored are those who give up their lives for the sake of Christ. Scholars have also wondered about the meaning of where you live, where Satan has his throne. Some have wondered if Jesus actually had a physical structure in mind. Perhaps it was the, the massive altar that was dedicated to the Greek god Zeus that was present in the city of Pergamum. About 120 feet by 112 feet, a large imposing structure that had the inscription Zeus Soter, meaning our savior Zeus. Or perhaps it was another structure, a huge medical center in Pergamum that was dedicated to Asclepius the god of healing and medicine, uh, the son of Apollo, uh, the one who held famously a, a depiction of a, of a snake coiled around a wooden staff. A, a large medical center, kind of like an ancient, say, Mayo Clinic or NIH, existed there in Pergamum. Uh, perhaps it was a large temple that we find erected in honor of Caesar. See, Pergamum was actually the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. So there was a lot of government stuff going on there. And it was, therefore, the major center of what's called the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar himself. That, too, was part of the religious mix of Roman life in this city. Perhaps it was all these things The throne of Satan, perhaps that was simply the cultural power of Rome and all that Rome represented, especially in its growing opposition to Christianity during the first century when this was first written. Whatever the case, Pergamum apparently wasn't a place very hospitable to followers of Christ. And so Jesus acknowledges and encourages those who remain faithful even in the face of suffering. And as we today participate in the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and as we remember in particular suffering Christians in Ethiopia, maybe today's a good day for us to notice these words of Jesus and to learn a few things about how Jesus himself speaks into persecuted contexts. Notice, for example, he doesn't at all sensationalize persecution. He, he doesn't romanticize it, pretend it's like some kind of glorified badge that we boast in. He's not interested at all in the kind of victimhood that these days, unfortunately, can characterize so many Christians here in the West. A place where we do enjoy many religious liberties. true. Christianity is becoming culturally decentered, out of the mainstream spotlight more and more, and there are pressures that are coming along with that. And yet we see no sense of Jesus sort of inviting his followers to lick their wounds and to overinflate the ways in which they live costly lives. Jesus doesn't invite us to pity them our persecuted Christian brothers and sisters. Rather, he invites us to seek to be more like them. In fact, it's been my growing conviction over these last several years that we have tried to support, pray for, and become more like our persecuted siblings around the world. That we here in this nation have an urgent need, not simply to support those who are suffering, but rather to be mentored by them. Because increasingly we ourselves need to be persuaded that it is possible to remain faithful to Christ even in the margins of society. That you don't need the culture and the nation to reflect your every conviction and value in order for you to flourish in your faith. Our brothers and sisters teach us that. We need to learn from them to be mentored by them. Notice Jesus commends them for their, remain, their, their, their steadfastness, for remaining loyal to him. He said, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. And he gives them assurance. I mean, solid, clear-eyed assurance. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's talking about him self. Notice he's talking to people themselves who have either been afflicted with said sword by Rome, or who live daily feeling threatened by the power of that throne in the form of a sword. And Jesus says, my sword is bigger. My sword is stronger my sword, more imposing. He uses this word, romphia, and lots of different Greek words for sword. He, he picks the biggest and baddest one. The one where any Roman citizen would have been familiar as to its reference to a, to, a, a, a sword about three feet long with about a two foot long handle, just a handle itself, two feet long, wooden. A three foot long curved blade that was so heavy that it required two hands to hold it up, and was so strong that it was famous for being able to cut right through enemies' shields. That's what Jesus says. His point is not just to present himself as an advocate for violence, he's showing that he more than measures up to the things that threaten the lives of his followers. And he's telling them to trust him, his might his sovereign power, his commitment to their well-being. And in fact, we have to notice Jesus doesn't patronize them either by saying, well, because of your suffering or your marginality, therefore you're sort of off the hook as far as following my word. No, he still expects of them obedience, even when they're hurting. You saw that transition in verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. He has the audacity to even rebuke and correct. Because he loves them so. Because he loves us so. Listen, the point here is that being martyred for Jesus is not for everyone. But in fact, being hurt for Jesus is. Being martyred for Jesus is not for everyone, but being hurt and living the costs of faithfulness to Jesus absolutely is the normal Christian life. Some of the Christians in Pergamum had counted that cost, had embraced it, and they were persecuted for it. However, others in that church refused. They had forgotten that faithfulness to Jesus is costly, and they themselves had begun to succumb to pressures to conform and to compromise. And this is the second way that Jesus addresses the costliness of faithfulness not persecution, but pressure to conform and to compromise. He addresses this in verse 14. There are some among you, he says, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now you say, well, who's this Balaam guy that Jesus is referring to? He's from the Old Testament. He was a pagan diviner, a false prophet, in fact, who came upon the people of Israel. You might know this story about a talking donkey That's related to Balaam. We won't go into that one here this morning. But we're told in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 25 of the book of Numbers this, that because of the ministry and the work of Balaam, the men of Israel began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices of their God. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Jesus uses this Old Testament story to say this is happening all over again in this church today. Right there in Pergamum. The same two problems. And in fact, the same two problems that we studied last week when we looked at the letter to the church in Thyatira sexual immorality on the one hand, and idolatry on the other. Last week we focused primarily on the sin of sexual immorality. You can listen to that recording later if you'd like. Today I'd like to focus on the problem of idolatry. The Christians in Pergamum were surrounded by idols of Roman culture. For them, of course, it was literal deities, God's and goddesses from the Roman pantheon. For us, it may not be so literal, but we too are surrounded in our culture by things that you can only describe as idols. You say, idols? Where? I don't see any altars. Well, perhaps what we need to have in mind are things that become not just want-to-haves, but need to have. Things that our hearts crave, desire too much, in fact, where our grip on them is just a little too tight, that it's not too hard to start describing them in our lives as having a religious power, a religious grip on our hearts, on our souls. Things that we turn to, look to, to give us meaning, to give us happiness, ultimate happiness, to give us significance things in our lives that require us to make grave sacrifices in order to obtain them and in order to keep them. The Christians in Pergamum faced daily pressures to embrace these gods. But understand, the way that idolatry often worked and the way that it worked in their lives was that the temptation to embrace these idols were just weaved right into their social life. And this is what I want you to notice. What this was all about in this time was not, hey, friend, let's go to that local temple and let's just start doing some rituals and sacrifices. It was, hey, friend, will you come over to my house and eat a meal with me? Or, hey, co-workers, let's go celebrate sort of a a work party. Let's let's go celebrate that success that we had in that project that we just finished. Uh, Let's have a good neighborhood party together. Let's enjoy each other's company. Meals, banquets with neighbors, co-workers, meals, however, that were explicitly dedicated by offerings to these gods. And so you can imagine Christians, by simply wanting to be friends and neighbors and co-workers, would face pressures, sometimes subtle, sometimes direct, to bow to the idols of Roman culture. And I wonder if that helps us to understand what you and I face, sometimes without even realizing it, on a day-to-day basis. Friends, think together with me. What are the idols of our culture right here in D.C.? Maybe just weaved right into the fabric of daily life, such that you might find yourself participating in them and bowing to them without perhaps even knowing. We might reference an idol of material possessions or perhaps material comforts, the ways in which our lives are arranged around our consumptive habits. You could point to perhaps the idol of politics And not just partisan commitments, but politics as sort of this ideological stranglehold that we need to confess can often come upon our hearts and our minds, so much so that it becomes even an identity, a key feature to who you believe yourself to be. And of course, one of the best ways in which you can test whether or not your politics have become idolatry is if you have no ability— to critique your own views or party or group, have you critiqued them lately? And only find yourself able to find fault with the other side, whoever they might be. We might be able to point to the idolatry of freedom that we find in our culture. I don't mean civil liberties. I'm talking primarily about the sense that anything that holds me back must be bad. Anything that constrains my free ability to choose, to be myself, to do what I want, that is what life is about. That is an idol. An idol of freedom. An idol of independence of the individual. We can point to the idol of the self. Everything revolves around me, my happiness. I, in fact, even get to create who me is, says our culture. We could point to other things like the idolatry of work and career, which in our city, we must confess, dominates so much of life. I don't just mean the hours you put into it. I also mean the fears and anxieties that you struggle with because of either what you want, you have, or you're afraid to lose. Matthew Perry, well-known actor, famously one of the Friends, right, famous show in the 90s and the early 2000s, was well-known to have struggled with addiction and much brokenness in his life, but also was a very honest person as far as we can tell. He passed away tragically this last week, as many of you know. And he wrote in his memoir that came out a couple years ago uh, just what you might call honest confessions, a real candor. Uh, about the emptiness that he struggled with, which he said was part of the reason for his struggle with addiction. And this is one of the things that he said. All these years later, I'm certain that I got famous so that I would not waste my entire life trying to get famous. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. You might say, I don't care to be famous. Uh, That's not really what I'm after. Well, maybe for you it's something else. Maybe you want to get famous on your block. Maybe it's you, want, you want to be known for something among your friends, among your coworkers. Maybe you don't want to be famous, but you're really mad right now that you didn't get credit for that project, for that work. Are these two signs, symptoms, signals of idols lurking in our hearts? And I just threw out a couple. You need to do the work of thinking through it yourself. And I want to invite you to think about the ones that maybe are the least examined. Okay, I got to be honest, right? It's that first one that I most have on my mind that I invite you to think about too, materialism. Because we live our lives surrounded by Amazon boxes and we kind of just shrug. and We're like, well, this is, just, this is just life, right? I don't know. Is it a box or is it an altar? I don't know. Jesus calls them and calls us to repent of these idols, to turn from them. But there's more going on in this passage than just that. He's not just saying, turn from these discrete problems in your soul. He's calling them to an entirely different way of looking at their followership in Christ. Because, you see, the book of Revelation is actually a call to become what New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls dissident disciples. Dissident disciples. A a, a dissident, you might know that word used in more of a political context. A dissident is someone who opposes an established religion or political system. Jesus is calling us to be different and to resist the seductive powers of the surrounding culture that we can actually describe as an empire. See, in Pergamum, the call was to resist Roman culture that was corrupting the church and the souls of the people in the church. And all throughout the book of Revelation, it's not found here in this letter, but if you're familiar with Revelation, you know Rome was actually described through the language and the idea of Babylon, the historical enemy of God's people. Babylon is the greater oppressor. Babylon is the great threat. And, of course, the charge that Jesus brings to the church is you might think you're the church, but you look a lot more like Babylon. You look a lot more like Rome. You think you you call yourself a holy people, followers of mine, but why do you look like the progeny of this city more than you look like a son of your father and a daughter of the king? You're called to be dissident disciples. You see, if you find no friction whatsoever, if you find no conflict with the world in your belief and practices, you just may not be following Jesus. Too at home with the empire around us. And listen, this does not mean that therefore the calling is to live with hostility toward your neighbor, or with a combative spirit towards the city, or even with a self pitying posture, they're out to get me. But rather, the invitation is to a kind of confident humility, a, a, a humble spirit that takes a low and loving posture before our neighbors, and yet a confidence in what Christ has told us is the truth about this world that he's made. But you're called to be different. You're called to be a dissident. And together, when we do that in community, we become, in the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, a colony of heaven. That's what the church is meant to be, a colony of heaven in the midst of this empire. The church is supposed to be a colony of grace in the midst of an empire of performance and merit. We're called to be a colony of forgiveness in an empire of retribution and enduring resentment. We're called to be a colony of Sabbath in the midst of an empire of slavish productivity. A colony of of peace in an empire of unending violence. A colony of service and generosity in an empire of extraction and greed. A colony in which Jesus is king in the midst of an empire that bows its knee to Caesar. That is what we're called to be, dissident disciples. But understand this too is true. Just because you're faithful and kind and polite and even winsome doesn't mean that faithfulness to Jesus will be universally welcomed. That was true for Pergamon. For them, and sometimes for us, refusing to embrace idols will come at measurable, relational, and economic cost. You say, economic cost? What do you mean? Listen, a fascinating historical detail behind what's going on here in the book of Revelation is this, that a lot of society was arranged around what historians have identified as being trade guilds. That means everyone worked as people have always worked, but they were organized together sort of among workers in a similar line of work. And so you got wool workers, linen workers, leather workers, pottery people, and so forth. And they were organized into these sort of labor unions or these work association, trade associations, or guilds that were very influential in cities like Pergamum, and especially last week's city that we looked at, Tyra. But all throughout the Roman Empire, this was the case. And here's the thing. Each of these guilds, trade associations, had their own patron deities, specific gods, that you would worship in order to ensure that you enjoyed economic prosperity, right? So if you were a wool trades person, well, you better start way up the food the supply chain and pay some respect and offerings to the sheep god, right? The, 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 the farming god. And, and if you had to get some produce out on a regular basis, you better bow your knee to the agriculture god and so on and so forth. Blessings for their industry. Members of these guilds, these associations, therefore they would often share meals like we described earlier. Food was offered explicitly dedicated to the industry's patron deity that also involved sexual entertainment as we talked about last week as well. And so here's the rub. If you wanted to do well in your work, if you wanted to get ahead in your workplace, you not only had to belong to one of these guilds, you also had to worship its god. And if you refuse, well, you would risk being an outcast. And not just an outcast, you would risk being economically deprived. You lose your position, your standing in society. You may no longer have any income. You might suffer hunger, even persecution, lack of food. Any follower of Christ in this time in Pergamum who belonged to such a trade guild would be regularly tempted, you can imagine, to eat food and participate in these meals sacrificed to idols and also to commit sexual immorality, which is what Jesus mentions here in verse 14. And so, of course, you just need to raise this question for us as we try to translate that context into our own. Where do you, where do I feel social and economic pressure in our workplaces and in our neighborly relations to compromise and to conform, to just go along? To compromise and conform to the idolatries of our culture? Again, in our workplaces, students, in your schools, and in our relationships with our neighbors. And see, what we have to notice is that the real threat was subtle and gradual, right? Little acts of conformity, little acts of compromise, right? Where you rationalize, well, you know, it's just one time. Or, hey, you know, I mean, I know I, it's... It, this is for my family, or this is to make rent, or this is, I, I need to keep doing what's demanded of me in this work, or I want to keep this fr- friendship, uh, I, I want to continue in this relationship, or we minimize. It's not that bad, right? I'm just kind of holding my breath and going along, right? Or, I, I, or I'm aware of where this can go, this sort of consumptive habit, right? Or this toxic way of relating to people, overworking denying my body the rest that I need, whatever idolatries we might be confronted with. And again and again, we sense the pressures to compromise, to conform, because faithfulness to Jesus is costly. I want to spell this out as clear as I can. We need to grapple with the concrete realities that following Jesus is awesome. (laughs) To undersell it. Following Jesus is true. But you may not be as financially uh, prosperous as you otherwise might be if you faithfully follow Jesus. And you may not be as universally loved and respected among your peers if you follow Jesus. But you will have Jesus. Which brings us to our conclusion. What does Jesus promise to those who remain faithful? I mean, Jesus is real, tough talk. He gives some commendation, but also calls them to repentance, but he finishes as he always does. In these letters with a promise what does he promise to those who remain faithful verse 17 whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who is victorious i will give some of the hidden manna i will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it all right what's manna What's Jesus talking about here? You know, in the Old Testament, while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after they escaped from Egypt in the Exodus, there's no food, no drink, so God had to miraculously provide for them. And manna was this bready substance that he provided every single morning. Bread from heaven was how it was described. God feeding his people in a time of scarcity. Jesus says, I will give you manna. And earlier in his ministry, he had taken up this picture from the Old Testament, and he used it to refer to himself. John six forty eight I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And so here's Jesus saying, hey, I know you are a people that are trying to be faithful, and that might mean refusing to go to these feasts and giving up maybe even your own livelihood, your jobs, in saying no to idolatry and saying yes to me and remaining loyal and faithful to me. In not feasting with them. Let me let you know, I invite you to a feast. An alternate feast. A feast on truth and grace. A feast in life. I know some of you might even end up giving up your lives. I am life. And I will raise you from the dead. Because if you eat of this bread, this bread, him, you will indeed live forever. And by offering these people manna, he's of course hearkening to what he's going to describe in fuller detail in Revelation chapter 19, where we're told that history itself is going to end in a feast, a great feast, a banquet called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the best wedding reception you could possibly imagine where we're going to celebrate Jesus' own marriage with his own people, you, me, together, eating and feasting and enjoying the very presence of our God. And so, to those who would dare not eat and to absorb the cost of faithfulness, Jesus is saying, you will not hunger. I will feed you. I will be your food, your sustenance. You may suffer economic deprivation on account of my name, but you will lack nothing. Manna from heaven. I'll prepare a feast for you, and one day you'll be invited to the greatest feast, the banquet of heaven. But not only manna, he offers a white stone. This though strange it might sound, is a promise of vindication. See, in ancient Roman courtrooms, jurors would cast their votes as to guilt or innocence. They would cast their votes by dropping in a pebble that was either white or black for a verdict that would be counted up using colored stones and pebbles. So a white stone would mean a vote for acquittal. Jesus will give you a white stone. Stone. And you say, why does that matter to these people in Pergamum or to you? Well, because your neighbors or your co workers, and sometimes even other Christians, might have pronounced a v- verdict over you worthless, evil, despicable, guilty, terrible. because of the things that you hold to or the people or the Savior that you believe in or because you believe in what's believed to be outdated or regressive or even oppressive ideas. You might be falsely accused. Jesus says he will vindicate you. He will give you his declaration of righteousness and innocence, even when the world carries on with a verdict of a different kind. And he says, along with this stone, it will be one that has a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And this name that's written on it is the name of Christ. We're told at the very end of Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 to 4, the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in the new heavens and new earth, and his servants shall serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. In other words, Jesus will affix his identity onto you. You will belong to him. In fact, you do now if you put your trust in him. And you can see what this might mean for people who have in this life given up their names, their reputations, their public standings for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus' name. He's saying, I'm going to give you this new name, my name, And by doing so, I'm giving you a new identity, a new status in my kingdom. You might have given all of it up in this world, but in my kingdom, you're one of my kings. You're one of my queens. You might be treated like a nobody now, but you need to know that you are somebody in my sight. You might have taken a shot to your public dignity, but don't you know you have the name of Christ? You're valuable in his sight. You might have given up your treasure, but you're God's treasure now. You might have given up relationship, but don't you know now, you bear the name of Christ, you have the intimacy of the Father himself. You're known deeply, personally. You have fellowship with the suffering Christ. You might today be treated as an outcast, but beloved, you belong to Jesus. Following him might cost you relationships, but you'll never, ever lose him or his family. And this is what you will get by Jesus in full one day, eternally, when we see him face to face when he returns. But he says, you're going to get a taste of that feast here even now, even now. Blessings that trickle into our lives. Eternal life that you enjoy even now. And a new identity that you enjoy even now. The declaration of an innocent verdict even now. The family of Christ that you get to be a part of even now. A taste of the bread of life even now. You see, because faithfulness to Jesus is costly, but Jesus more than makes up the cost. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Help us to believe it. It's hard to believe. Help us to believe it, oh Jesus, that you're worth it. Give us your Spirit. Keep us faithful. Help us to follow you wherever you take us. Keep us humble. Keep us hungry. And help us to see and know you and to taste you as the bread of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.